Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. We're going to continue in our series together this morning. Uh, I see many new faces here this morning, so remember Pastor Ben, uh, in his welcome to you, that we do have a gift for you. Just fill out that Connect card and after service, uh, take that to the desk. But my name is Jonathan Holmes. I am the family pastor here. I oversee the ministry uh, of birth all the way through college and young adult. And so it's a joy to be here with you this morning to open up God's Word. And we're continuing in our series called Stories. And in the summers, we go through the Gospel of Matthew together. And so if you have your Bible, uh, would you turn with me to Matthew 15? And I pray that this morning, as we open up God's Word, that our eyes and our hearts would be open to receive His truth, to apply it to our lives, and to walk in obedience. As I read the Bible, I find myself placing myself in the stories. Connecting with characters. I wonder if you do the same. I wonder as you read the Bible, do you connect uh, with the story or with the characters in the stories? So often I find myself connecting to the disciples, that they're just missing the point that Jesus is making. They're not understanding. They're not getting what's going on. I'm like, listen, I'm there, right? I, I connect with that. Maybe you connect with David and his highs or his lows or in some of the Psalms that he wrote. Maybe you, you lead, uh, lead a family or an organization or a business and you connect with Moses and the leadership woes that he experienced. But friends, I have exciting news. I find myself this morning connecting with Jesus. I see some of myself in Jesus. Now, before you get to like, wow, that is a prideful thing to say, right? Don't accuse me of that just yet because it is in this story, I see that Jesus does something I do naturally. I don't even have to think about it. Jesus frustrates people. He does this often in his ministry. I do too. Just ask the people I work with. This is great, right? But here in this story, it is, you know, this is a story where we get a little uncomfortable. We want to squirm a little bit. And whenever we read this story, I want you to see a couple things. But let's, let's look at Matthew 15, verse 21, as we talk about, as the sermon is titled, Mega Faith. Now, that's the sermon title for you. Mega faith. Starting in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. 
Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Upon the initial reading of this text, I want to squirm a little bit. I I don't like Jesus' response. Now, I'm not the first person to realize uh, that Jesus frustrated people in his ministry. One commentator said this, Jesus simply had a way of exasperating people. It only takes a glance through one of the Gospels. And before you know it, you will find yourself squirming. And after the initial reading of this passage, I was squirming. In fact, you know, when Pastor Lane gave me the summer preaching schedule, I quickly turned my Bible open, I read the text, and I went over to the other pastors and said, would you like to trade? Anyone? Anyone. And I wonder why Pastor Lane is not preaching this one. Come on now, all right? This initial reading is hard. It's difficult. But I, I believe this morning that as we read this passage, as we understand what Jesus is teaching through this parable, that he is teaching us and encouraging our faith. And so as we come to the text together, I pray that your faith is encouraged. I pray that your faith is strengthened. Now, the thing I want to point you at at the very beginning, where the title message, the message of the title comes from, the very last verse, Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. Now, that word great there is where we get our word mega. Mega. So Jesus calmed the mega storm. And Jesus looks at this Canaanite woman and says, you have mega faith. See, when we think of greatness, we use that term often, but this is huge. This is mega, right? And as the kids say often, right, mega, right? They, they have good emphasis. We lack that when we say great faith. It's like, yeah, that was great. That was a great time. No, this is mega faith. And I pray that as we look at mega faith this morning, we will see mega faith emerges in desperate times, through humble Christ followers, and by perseverance. So mega faith emerges in desperate times through humble Christ followers and by perseverance. We have mega phones, we have megabytes, and this morning we have mega faith. And we're going to look at the characteristics of that faith together. In verse 21, Matthew tells us, as we look at our story together, that he withdrew. Now this happens often in the gospel narrative, that he withdraws, but this time he withdraws very far away. Mark's account of this story tells us that Jesus went into a house when he got to Tyre and Sidon. And then he gives us the reason for going to the house. So this is Mark 7, verse 24. Jesus did not want anyone to know it. Yet, he could not keep his presence a secret. So Jesus was truly withdrawing. He was getting away. He was not going to seek to minister to this area, although that will happen. He was withdrawing. He was seeking rest. And for many of us, it is vacation season. And we are anxiously awaiting or reminded of the trips that we've gone on. And so if you're one of those who are still waiting... Maybe you're waiting for just some time off. The days get a little closer. You start checking off the days and it's a month away. A little excitement builds in you. 
You think about all the things you're gonna do, what you're gonna experience. Then it's the day before and it's a hectic time of packing because you should have started the week before, but you weren't organized. And come on, people, let's go. And then you're off and you reach your destination wherever that might be. And all of a sudden, like a switch, you start resting. You don't notice it. It's not like a conscious decision or maybe for some of you it is. But you breathe a little deeper. You're not as worried about everything that's happening in the world or your life. You're breathing and you're just in that moment. You're experiencing with your family or your friends or just some time off and you're breathing deeply. And then it happens. A buzz in your pocket. Now when this happens for me, I think I have this internal dialogue and it convinces me. You need to check that notification. Yeah. I do. No, listen, Jonathan, you're important. The world is counting on you. And so I'm, I'm thinking, I need to check this, right? So I put it open, look at my phone. It's an email. Well, I should read this email. It demands my attention. And just like that, I have flipped the switch from vacation mode in rest and relaxation back to work mode. See, we think of achievement in work only, but it is a great achievement to rest well, to avoid distraction, to avoid interruption. That is a great achievement. And that's what Jesus is seeking in this moment, but his interruption doesn't come from a rectangle in his pocket. It comes from a cry at the door. But this cry is very loud. It is disrupting. And he goes so far away from his ministry in Galilee, he goes all the way to the region of Tyre and Sidon to try to find rest. Now, you, you may not be familiar with this area. This is about anywhere from 30 to 50 miles north of Galilee. So this is not a staycation for Jesus. He wasn't just trying to blend in and go with the norm. He was getting away. He was seeking rest. But this area is a pagan area. This is not a Jewish territory. This is not a place for a Jew to even stay. These are the sworn enemies of Israel. One commentator said this of the area. Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could encounter. This is the opposite of what he was experiencing in Galilee. Tyre and Sidon are found in what is today modern-day Lebanon. And these were the arch rivals of Israel. Now, as you can imagine, Jesus is recognized quickly, and his rest disappears with a knock at the door. With a knock at the door. He was trying to escape some of the religious authority and political authority he was experiencing in Galilee. Finding rest, and then a cry at the door. And Mark says he could not escape notice. Now, this is a decisive breaking point in Jesus' ministry. He had not ministered or even gone to a pagan territory. But yet, here he is. He is, he is in this pagan land. Now, he had healed and encountered Gentiles in Galilee and other areas, but here he is found in a foreign land interacting with a foreign person, someone who is far 
from Israel. See, his ministry up until this point was teaching with authority, doing incredible, powerful miracles to show that that authority was true to the covenant people of Israel. These were the chosen people, and he was going to preach the good news to them. Now listen to how he, how he uh, interacts or speaks of Tyre and Sidon in another place. If you flip over to Matthew 11, and we'll look at verse 20 and 21, he he's references the same exact location. And he says this, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. These are Jewish. This is Israel. Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. He's using them as an example. Like if I would do for them what I am trying to reveal to you, they would have already repented. He is proclaiming the kingdom of God to the chosen people of God and they're rejecting him. And here we see that he denounces them for their unbelief. And he references Tyre and Sidon. And we're in that region now, even though he's going to this area for the purpose of ministry, we know that Jesus is not just fully man. Jesus is also fully God. He knows what's about to happen. He has made this moment occur in a way to teach his disciples something about the redemptive plan of God. So let's look back at our verses together this morning. Matthew 15, verse 21. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. See, here he's interrupted by not just a woman, a Canaanite woman. And Matthew makes that designation for us, for our ears to perk up a little bit, our eyes to notice. This is a Canaanite woman. Well, who are the people of Canaan? See, you're familiar with Batman versus the Joker. Arch rivals, right? Then you see Mario versus Bowser. You're with me here, okay. Let's try another one. Yankees versus Red Sox. Some of you might feel a little too deeply. We'll talk about that in a later sermon. But here we see the Canaanite people, the arch rivals of Israel. We can't miss this. This is someone who Israel Their history goes back all the way back to the promised land. This is the people of Canaan. These were the hated people. And so, we miss some of the discomfort that would be tangible in the air here. And we we need to unearth it. First, they are in a foreign but not just a foreign land, like, uh, like uncomfortable, like, you know, we don't know how everything works. They have different customs. This is a hated land. This is a rival people. 
an enemy of God. Second, women are not supposed to approach men during this time. And especially, heighten that a little bit more, women are not supposed to approach a rabbi, someone with authority to teach. And finally, this woman is crying out. This is not coming to Jesus in secret, pulling on his robe. This is none of that. This is a continual cry out. You could also translate that as shouting. This is a scene. She is making a scene, and why was she crying out? Well, that's where we get our first characteristic of mega faith. See, mega faith is revealed in desperate times. It emerges. It reveals. You know why she has this unbelievable boldness, don't you? Why she would be so daring to step out and go to Jesus. This is an unclean Gentile pagan woman from a rival land who has no say in the covenant of God. Not one of the children of Israel. She has no, nothing to stand on. Yet she comes to a rabbi named Jesus to step in for her daughter. One author said this, there are cowards and then there are regular people. Then there are heroes. Then there are parents. See, parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save her. And this is what we see. We would translate that in our vernacular today, don't poke mama bear, right? You don't mess with a parent. Do whatever it takes. This is a desperate time, and in desperate times, the strength of faith is revealed because it's tested. It's tested. In comfort, it is easy to say, of course I believe in God. I trust him with everything. I trust him with all that I am because you're comfortable and content. But it's when those hard times come, when the cost of discipleship is a little bit harder for Christ. It's in the dark nights of the soul. It's in the moments of doubt that we wonder, this is where faith is tested, friends. Now, my first car growing up was a hand-me-down Jeep Grand Cherokee. It was awesome, right? I loved that thing. It was great. But there was one thing, I mean, and I took it apart. I did a bunch of stuff to it. I made it look as cool as it could. But here's the deal. I didn't know one fact about it. Safety ratings. I did not care. I was in high school. Why would I care how safe my vehicle is if I'm invincible? It doesn't make sense to me, right? It was the farthest thought from me. So when I wanted and I was shopping for a new car, I did not think, how safe is this car? I thought, how fast is it? How much is it going to cost me? And is it fun to drive, right? Nothing on safety. Now, today, as a father, I look at safety ratings a little closer. 
I mean, that's one of the first things I go to. If you look on a, a dealership's website, they, they tout it at the very beginning for minivans because they know what you're after, parents. They know, like, this is the safest vehicle to ever exist. It is a bubble once it gets touched. It just, whoop, and it, you're done. You, it's impossible to get hurt in this thing. Test it, right? Now, can you imagine with me, you pull up a website showing a new car and you look for the crash test rating and you know, you're know you expecting the five star, all the things, and it says TBD. What? To be determined on me? No, 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 no. This is not how it works, right? I want you to determine the strength of this vehicle before I put my family in it. I want you to make sure that this thing is safe, it is secure, and it is the best way for my family to travel. Now, that is testing the safety of that vehicle. It's revealed how secure it is. You would not be comfortable putting your family or you driving that car without being tested fully. In desperate times, our faith is tested. In desperate times, hard, difficult times. So the question here is, when your faith is tested, in those dark moments of the soul, what is revealed? When you have doubts and questions, in the hardest days that you can think of, what does that reveal about your faith? The, the Canaanite woman here begins to reveal her faith in an unbelievable boldness as she cries out to Jesus. Even though she knows how socially unacceptable this whole event is, she steps out in between her daughter and Jesus and cries out to the only one that can save her and says, Lord, son of David. Isn't that unbelievable? We could, we could spend a whole 30 minutes on that, but just, just highlight that, circle that, study that this week. Why does she say, Lord, son of David? And she keeps on shouting. Remember, the woman is outside the people of Israel. She is not part of the covenant. She is a sinner. She is a descendant of sinners. Yet she addresses him as the son of David. She hasn't met Jesus before, but she is so fed up with her false gods. She is so fed up with trying everything that she can, she finally makes it to the one person that can save her. She finally makes it to the one true God. And in desperation, she cries out to Jesus. Now, her faith can be called mega faith or great faith, not because her strength of will. It is because of where she has placed her faith. It is the object of her faith that is great. It is not the magnitude of her willing to hold on to it. It is the object of her faith that is great. It is Jesus. See, as Christ followers, we're not called to have a blind faith. We don't jump out in darkness hoping that we'll find ground. That is ignorance. One preacher said it like this, you never jump from an airplane without a parachute and say, I believe, help my unbelief. That's stupidity. We do not praise that faith. That is not great faith. That is not wise. That is not what we're called to do as believers. 
See, if you have a parachute, then you have something to believe in. You have an object for your faith. You're placing faith in that parachute. We're not called to have blind faith, but mega faith. And mega faith is, has nothing to do with me, has nothing to do with the Canaanite woman. It has everything to do with where it's placed. It is not mega. It is not great because of the strength of faith. It is great because of the object of that faith. The faith of the Canaanite woman is inspiring to us because here in this moment, it's finally placed in the right object. It makes it home, finally. See, in desperate times, what is revealed about your faith? In those hard times, where have you placed your faith? It's easy and it's not tested when we say in good times, I trust the Lord with everything. It's when that trust costs you something. Just like we look at cars, we jump from airplanes, there's an object of faith, and that object of faith must be placed in the right person, the person of Jesus. Now, a second characteristic of mega faith taught to us by a Canaanite woman is mega faith is revealed in humble Christ followers. Look at verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. Let's pause there. Can you imagine this moment? Hearing the continual cries out from a foreign woman. Sure, weeping, yelling, trying to get the attention. And what is Jesus' response? It's, it's everything we, we don't expect. We expect him to go to her, right? To acknowledge her. But it's emphasized, he did not answer her, not just that, he did not answer her a word. He did not give her a mention. And see, friends, silence can be awkward. You feel it. Can you imagine that moment? That was less than five seconds. And we're just really uncomfortable with silence. But like a good teacher does, they pause after a good question. And you sit in it, right? You think, I don't know the answer. Or you think, that's a really good question. And you pause. And in that silence, that's when the gears start going. Here in this moment, see, Jesus' silence is not meant to quench the woman's faith. Not at all. He he understands exactly what's happening. He is heightening the moment. He is pausing. He wants to teach his disciples a lesson and that's exactly where the next request comes. See, the silence is broken, not by Jesus, by his disciples. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. He answered, now Jesus finally speaks. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So if there were any questions on whether this was an awkward situation or not, it's answered now. We're not reading anything into the text. The disciples are, hey, you remember when you promised us some rest? 
what's going on, right? Like she's yelling and this is really uncomfortable. Let's figure this out. Let's get this ball rolling so we can finally nap. Let's get some rest, Jesus. And here he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, if you go back again in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew 10 and verses five through seven. So turn over to Matthew 10. And Jesus is reminding his disciples, remember why I've come. We've already read where he's rebuked the cities that the disciples shared the good news in. But look at Matthew 10, verse 5. Look at when he sends out his disciples. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather, here's our key phrase, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you can turn back, but that is where he's referring from. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sent his disciples not to Gentile territory, not to the pagan land, but to the covenant people of God, to the chosen nation. See, Jesus' ministry was primary to Israel. Yes, it would have profound effects to the entire area and eventually the world. But at this time, his mission was to the people of God. This dispensation of grace is to the nation of Israel. He is proclaiming the good news to them. Will there come a time when it's an open invitation? All are welcome. Yes. But that moment does not come in his incarnation. It comes on the resurrection. When he was crucified, the curtain tore in two. It's open doors. All are welcome as children of God. But here he is reminding his disciples, I have come to preach the good news to the people of God. And here Jesus' is silence, and his silence was not designed in any way to extinguish the woman's faith. It was to emphasize the lesson. And look at how she responds. Verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, It's a simple cry. Lord, help me. Her physical posture reflects the reality of her heart. This is what was true of her heart, but now she's kneeling physically. Knowing she doesn't have any right to approach him. Knowing she's not a part of the nation of Israel. She has no claim in the covenant. But here she cries out not for what she deserves, but what she knows she doesn't deserve. She cries out to the Lord for mercy. Lord, help me. James reminds us that kneeling before Christ is the only posture of a Christian. It says, James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Jesus in Matthew 23 will say, whoever exalts himself shall be or will be humbled. There is no question The proud will be humble, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The only posture of a Christian is one of humility, is one of in need, in need of his mercy. 
See, there are times when the silence of God is deafening in our own lives. We wonder as we pray and we don't hear. We wonder if his silence means that there's a lack of love. We wonder if he's even listening. And in our darkest days, we wonder if he's even there. And there, in that moment, it says much more about us than it has anything to say about him. In that moment, it's revealing the reality of your faith, of your heart, not the reality of who God is. And the final element of mega faith that we look at together is perseverance. We see this in verse 26. See, mega faith is revealed in perseverance. He answers her request for mercy. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. At first, I thought Jesus' silence was harsh. And then we see where he talks to her. And I go, oh, that's really uncomfortable. See, it's common in this day to call, for the Jews to call Gentiles dogs because they're unclean. It was a type of an insult. But Jesus here is not insulting her. He is reminding her of who she is. What group of people that she's a part of. Where she has cast her lot, you would say. One would think he intends to cut off all hope that the woman might receive in mercy because not only, not only does he remind her that the children of the family are to eat before the dogs, he calls her, identifies her with the dogs. See, he is revealing, a, he's, he's teaching a lesson. This is a metaphor. You might call it a parable. This is a metaphor for the progressive, redemptive plan of God. And he's teaching her in this moment. Jesus is saying to this, mo this woman, that it's not the right order. When the family eats, the food goes to the children first. How terrible and sad it would be if the wonderful food went and it was walking towards the table and the parents set the food and they feed the dogs and the kids are left hungry. That's what he's saying. He's saying there's an order to this plan. I have come for a nation that is rejecting me. And there will come a time, there will be fulfillment but it is not at this time. You must understand how families eat. First, the meal is prepared and it goes to the kids. And then afterwards, the dogs, the family household pets might get a crumb. But look at what she says. Oh, well, let's point back first to verse 24, where Jesus reminds his disciples who he was sent to. Who? The nation of Israel. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were lost. See, this is important to understand because remember, Jesus did not come to abolish the law and prophets. When Jesus came, he wasn't saying, yeah, all that stuff was weird and garbage. I'm here, right? Like, that's what we think sometimes. And we read the Old Testament, we think, why am I reading this? No, from the very beginning, creation tells the story of God loving his people. And that love is revealed in his redemptive plan that ultimately is fulfilled in Revelation. 
But that story goes from Genesis to Revelation, friends. He did not come to abolish and say, let's get rid of that. I'm finally here. He comes to fulfill it. And that fulfillment comes in his death and resurrection. This is the in-between. She's heard the good news and she wants a little bit of it. But listen to how she responds. She doesn't take offense to what Jesus says. She actually says, yes, Lord. She understands that she doesn't have a seat at the table. But a crumb is more than enough. And that's what sparks. That's what creates the moment. She understands. She's not saying, I am part of this promise. That promise was to a group of people. She's not saying, I have a claim to that promise. I know what I deserve, Jesus. I'm asking for what I don't deserve. I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking for grace. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now Jesus, this is the first time Jesus heals a foreigner in a foreign land. He has healed foreigners before, but always in Gentile, or in uh, Galilee, in that area. But this is a foreigner in a foreign land. We're seeing a glimpse of the future. We're seeing a glimpse into the gates of heaven being flung open, saying all are welcome who believe and profess in Jesus Christ. And here we see that this is not just the first time. Jesus has said great faith. There was one other time in Matthew 8. Do you think he speaks that of a Jew? No, it's again a Roman centurion. Jesus looks at him and says, great is your faith. For you are outside the people of God, yet you believe this is the belief I've come for. My people are rejecting me. And this is a person that has received salvation. So the invitation this morning, in conclusion, would you like to have your faith strengthened this morning? Do you desire that for your life like I do? That you resonate with those moments where the disciples miss the point or you resonate with the hard days or the, the times of suffering when you doubt. Do you want your faith to be strengthened this morning? If you desire that, whether you're a believer or you've never come to knowing faith, that in that moment, that faith, great mega faith, comes from the realization of two critical truths. Now the first is a downer. So you ready? This is, this is a tough one. You are more sinful than you ever thought possible. You are more sinful. I am more sinful than we ever thought it was even a possibility. Just when you think you've rooted out sin, you find a little bit more a fruit of sin pops up and you think, where's that root? I got to find that one. What in the world? You are more sinful than you ever thought possible. We are totally depraved. Our hearts are wicked. They are evil. We are filled with sin. Now that does not give us the right to sin. That should show us where we deserve to sit. See, I think growing up in church is a really cool thing. 
But I think the longer we spend in church, the more we think we deserve. What did the disciples ask toward the end of Jesus' life and ministry? Remember? Hey, who's sitting at your right and left hand, Jesus? That looks pretty lush. I think I got that spot right. You know, it's like, ah, yeah, I'm there, right? You don't know what you're asking. You think you deserve that. Like, that's where, that's where we get. We think, look at how much I've sacrificed God. I deserve the best seed in the house. Oh, man. Then we come to Jesus and we're asking for mercy, but really what we're asking is for payback. There's no mercy there. We grab our seat and we sit at the table and we say, I deserve this. We never should get over, believer or unbeliever, how sinful we are. A crumb is enough for us. A crumb is enough. Remember what he says, this is a little tangent. It's really good though. Remember what he says about, about the feast? He says, whenever you go to a feast, don't sit at the, at the high table. Because the person might come to you and say, you need to go lower, right? There was all these uh, organization of where people were sitting based on honor. Now, he says, sit at the very bottom. And the one who comes in that is leading the feast will say, hey, come sit up here. Friends, humble yourself before the Lord. Understand what you deserve and come to him with that understanding. But the second truth, this is where it gets really good. And for those of you who are like me a little bit, you think, I came here for a reminder of hope and I'm getting a reminder of how bad I am. I don't need that reminder, right? If you're just down on yourself all the time, if your playlist in your head is all about how bad you are or how terrible you've done or what the mistakes you've made, like let this just just root really deep into your heart this morning. Like, believe this, hear this. Because the second truth, you are more loved than you ever dreamed to be. You are more loved than you ever dreamed to be. A spouse cannot give you that love. A child cannot give you that love. Success cannot give you that love. There is one thing that gives you that love, and it's the love of Jesus Christ. And just when you think, I don't deserve a seat at the table, right when you feel that, you see and feel Jesus lift you up, and you say, I know you don't, but I've made a seat at my table. And when you think you'll be satisfied by crumbs, just wait for the feast I will bring. And that is our salvation. See, mega faith, mega faith reveals itself in testing through really hard, desperate times. It is found in humble Christ followers. And it emerges by perseverance. So question this morning, would you like your faith strengthened? Come to the Lord, he is willing.